0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you along. Have a great episode for you this week. First up is Shams Trania of Real GM. He had an excellent week breaking the Luol Deng trade news, and so we recorded the next morning talking about that whole process and also his analysis of the trade on both sides. And then I had on Irv Sunichan, who is a friend of mine for years. He's a really talented basketball mind, and we talk about the Warriors and LeBron's place in history, the Western Eastern Conference, and a whole lot of stuff in between. But first up is Sean Strania. He broke the Waldang news. As I said, he's been an absolutely amazing reporter. We focus primarily in this conversation on the Wall Deng trade. Runs about 17 minutes. Hope you enjoy. It. So thanks so much for coming on.
2: Yep, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're recording this on Tuesday, and you've had a pretty busy last 12, 24 hours. you want to walk through it a little bit?
2: Yeah. It's interesting because last week, everything around this, from the bull side and even from the wall bank side, everyone, you know, was denied anything was going to happen. The bulls are saying, you "No, know, we want to keep him. We want to resign to a long-term extension after the season. There are no trades. And it's interesting because you talk to people around the wall and, you know, Everyone said, any trade even to Cleveland was a, was going to be a fantasy. That's how it was put to me. But, you know, it, it happened pretty quick, obviously, with, with Cleveland getting right to the deadline with Andrew Bynum's non-guaranteed contract, non-guaranteed portion of his contract. You know, the Bulls just felt they couldn't get anything better than that at any point of the season in terms of the flexibility of waiving Andrew Bynum, which will, which they'll do now. So they're going to get financial flexibility out of that. So, you know, it, it kind of happened really quick as soon as I got word that the trade was happening. I obviously went to Twitter and tweeted it out. That's about it, though.
0: In terms of your own assessment, obviously neither of us are GMs, but do you think that they could have gotten more for Dang?
2: I think in terms of in terms of value this season, I think you could have. I think you definitely could have gotten short term value. It seemed like the Lakers were really pushing them. They've been pushing Trey trade and who knows, that could happen at some point, regardless of him surviving this Bynum sweepstakes, if you want to put it that way. But I do think that the Bulls could have gotten, you know, some short-term talent if they wanted. But, you know, the combination of draft picks and the non-guaranteed portion of, of Andrew Byron's deal, I think it was too much for them to pass up. And, you know, Luol Bing was confident the whole time that he would get more than the Bulls would offer. And it seemed like the Bulls lowballed balled him a little bit in their and and even John Paxson today, that, you know, they gave Luol an, out, an offer before trading him. So I think that both sides felt it was the right moment to split. And I think Luol Deng's last deal, it was, it was I think a lot, a lot of people deemed it as, you know, they overpaid for him. But I think the offer he got this time from the Bulls, it was a clear low ball, reported three years, $30 million. And I think everyone surrounding Luol Deng believes, you know, he's worth at least 13 to $15 million around what, you know, guys like Andrew Gudala got, Josh Smith. And I think that's what he's probably going to get, you know, somewhere in the middle between those guys.
0: And to me, that's the big part of this overall decision in terms of moving Waldang is that if they couldn't come to a common ground for him to come back to the team, then you're dealing with a compressed timeline. Because in the current CBA, signing trades are a very different thing than they were in the last one because of what teams are restricted and all that. And there aren't really many advantages. So, if the Bulls assessed that they were not going to retain him, if that be that they undervalued him or if they feel he overvalued himself, it doesn't really matter. If you're dealing in that world, then there are different ways that you can look at it. And I think you framed that well in terms of the balance of a short term guy like Pau Gasol or a long term thing like assets, draft picks, and the like.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, I don't have any information on this, but just what it seemed like what John Paxson was referring to today. They talked about acquiring players who, who were under longer-term deals. John Paxton specifically talked about deals that will that'll extend the next season. I think the Bulls just wanted to get rid of any type of contract that would take them into next season. They wanted that financial flexibility. And, you know, the onus is really on the Bulls now at this point. To really. And, and John Paxton said he's going to take all, all those financial savings and invest it in the team. But, I mean, with this team, you just don't know how, how proactive they are. This was a proactive move, though, considering, you know, after – the. They've talked the past two weeks about being adamant about not trading Luol. And now that they trade him, I think that shows some proactivity on their end. And, you know, for Cleveland, I think obviously Luol thing helps them short term. But, you know, their vision really was having Andrew Byron down low, contributing as a post player. Because if you look at it, they have guards who can create their own shot on the perimeter, a lot of jump shooters on that team. And that's exactly what Luol thing is. And I think, you know, their vision is sort of, this trade sort of tarnishes it. Everything that that's going on with Andrew Byron in the past two weeks, I think really tarnished the Cavaliers' vision for what the season could have been. Even though Andrew Byron was coming off of season that he, he completely missed the entire season last year with the 76 obviously. But I think the Cavaliers envisioned him getting back into full shape, contributing uh, in the post, being a double-digit point guy, double-digit rebound guy. And now that won't come to fruition. And I think now they, they sort of limited their downsides in that, you know, they got rid of dead weight and Andrew Bynum, turned it into a valued commodity in the and, Uh And, you know, at worst, the is just going to be a rental. So I think they made out all right, too.
0: I think that that's the interesting part of it in terms of Cleveland is that I, I was heavily critical of it just because I don't think that they're bit, they should be about winning now but I, it's weird to me to be critical of a trade that I like the player they got a lot and Dang fits there but the worry for me especially with this goes along with Dang's price tag considering we know that he has a lot of a lot of wear on his tires let's say for somebody who's his age that to me the worst possible scenario is that they really overpay him because let's say let's say they make the playoffs and obviously that would be great mm-hmm. then they they get pressure from the fans and the media to overpay him because they can really only add one more piece through free agency with the way that because Kyrie is going to get paid real soon mm. and so if you're thinking of their core as Kyrie dang and a bunch of potentially good but big question mark players I just feel that it's possible they could do better but and if he's a rental then it's a very strange time for it.
2: I think that the Cavaliers looked at it as, like a lot of people thought that the bullshit should look at it, where you're not, you're not going to get a guy like, you know, realistically, I know everyone's bringing the Cleveland ties into LeBron, but if he's all about winning, Cleveland's start of the season really just crushed any any hopes that they had because, you know, they started really poor this season, and they've been a big disappointment, and I think everyone around that organization, that franchise ownership and everyone downward, you know, expected them to be a playoff team, especially them to be a high-seeded team, especially now that the East is telling, You expect them to be, you know, at least fighting for home-court advantage, and they're far from it. So I, I think Luolving fulfills the mandate of making the playoffs. Even though he, he does have a lot of wear to you got to remember he is just twenty-nine. I, I do think, you know, he's closer to the down end of his career than he is the up, upward, obviously. But I think, you know, and, and also what has to be mentioned is, you know, Luol Bang and Kyrie Irving, in a very under-the-radar way. I think they have a very solid relationship just from everything I've heard. And even publicly, Luol Bang in recent seasons, he's sort of raved about bottom every time the, the two teams have played. So I think that went a long way, including the decision as well, you know, enticing Kyrie Irving.
0: And they both have a Duke connection, and I'm sure that network helps with that. And, and exactly. Kyrie's a guy who I think makes sense with Luol's, de- for, with Luol's game, and that could be interesting as well.
2: Yeah, well, a guy who, you know, you've seen him, obviously. You know, he's a guy who doesn't need the ball in his hands. You know, he can let Kyrie Irving do his things without being ball dominant. And I think that allowed him to succeed so much with Derrick Rose all these years. So I, I think there's some upside, and I think Cleveland should be able to make the playoffs. But if not, that would be a huge disappointment.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about this, as it relates to the playoffs, and this will shift it back to the Bulls, is can they still make the playoffs, or is this kind of the mandate to Thibodeau to lay off the gas pedal?
2: No, I I think the playoffs is definitely legitimate for them and any team in the East, aside from you know the Milwaukee's of the Eastern Conference. And, and it was interesting because John Paxson said in his press press conference that you know he expects the players to continue fighting and all that, but you know you just don't know there could be more moves on the way. And I think this trade more than anything, you know, I think the Dirk Rose injury really just crushed the Bulls, really hurt their mindset into playing to win each and every game. You know, Tom Thibodeau stresses you have more than enough to win with. So I think that went out the you know, I think this just smacks it. You know, a lot of players were close with Wall Ding and despite Derrick Rose's emergence the past few seasons, I think Luol Ding was the unquestioned leader in that locker room, and even Derrick Rose has admitted that. So I think it's going to hurt them in, in the short term, and I think even the long term. They've obviously created a lot of financial flexibility, but who knows what kind of free agent they'll get, if any. They obviously struck out last time. They got Carlos Boozer, but that was, you know, a way down from what they expected. So it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how I didn't compete in free agency as well.
0: How do you think this affects the relationship, which from what I've heard is already pretty strained, between Thibodeau and the front office?
2: I think obviously this damages it even more. They said that they have a good working relationship, but everything sort of gives how they interacted with each other, even at Summer League and just everything you hear on a daily basis just seems like it's a relationship that they know they have to sustain for the just for the well-being of the team, more out of necessity than, you know, desire. I think this trade of didn't really crushed any any type of, you know, legitimate hope of making a run. I think that's what Tom Thibodeau teams are all about.
0: Do you have any sense of... It's, all, it's hard to tell with the Bulls, of whether this is going to impact what decisions they make in terms of potentially using the amnesty on Carlos Boozer this summer? It's interesting because... A
2: lot of, I know after, especially after Taj Gibson got his extension last summer, a lot of people around the Bulls, a lot of rival agents were saying that the Bulls of amnesty, Carlos Boozer, this past summer, and then moved Taj Gibson into, into the starting lineup. But that obviously didn't happen. A lot of think had to do with Carlos Boozer. He had a pretty strong year last season in terms of staying on the court, being healthy. It's going to be hard for the Bulls to amnesty, Boozer, even though it will create financial flexibility. And, and we'll see if they end up doing it if opportunities come up in terms of signing some of the bigger-name free agents. And in that case, they're going to need to open up that kind of cap room. But if not, I think I just wouldn't be that surprised if Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't want to eat the money. You know, with the Amnesty, you're going to have to obviously pay him to leave. And I, I just don't think the Bulls have shown, you know, their past has really shown that they're going to they're going to make a move like that, just pay a guy to leave. He's been productive. It's not like he hasn't been productive. It's just about is he a legitimate starting power forward at this point in a championship caliber team. And I think the answer is no, but he's still productive, and I think that the Bulls at this point, I don't think they would pay him to just leave.
0: I think that's the prescient point in all of this is that it doesn't fit Reinsdorf's mo to pay a guy because they're paying him the same amount of money exactly. to leave. It, the only reason that they could see that is if they had a guy in hand that they couldn't get otherwise. And yeah, so you know, yeah. let's say theoretically, LeBron says I want to go to I want to go to the Bulls, could do it that way.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a complete long shot. But, you know, as you said, let's say LeBron says, you know, I want to come here, and then he gets another guy to attack him like they did in Miami. Then I think Reinser would have no other choice. But I think that in itself is a long shot, a big-name free agent coming to Chicago in the summer. I I just don't... I think you know maybe they have a shot at, at a guy like Chris Bosh. who doesn't work out in Miami. I know people talk about Carmelo Anthony, but I just don't see him leaving the money on the table in New York. And you know Chris Bosh is just one singular free agent. He's not going to attract a multitude of big name free agents like LeBron did in 2010. So I I just don't think that you know Rajon would eat that money up just because.
0: The other big question with this Bulls team is we haven't seen what would happen with the Thibodeau team when they really when if they were conceived to be out of it. I I cover the Warriors and when the Warriors had the when they were tanking for Harrison Barnes, they put a bunch of their guys on the shelf, basically accelerated the surgery schedule for guys. Do you think we'll see something like that with this Bulls team?
2: No, I I just don't see. I know John Fax has sort of alluded to it sort of hinted at it, you know, he said that the big thing that the Bulls got to worry about right now is not getting injured, and I think that you're just leaving that thought in their mind. Beginning with Tom Thibodeau, I just don't see, no matter what type of talent he has, I just don't think he's a guy who's going to change. I think he's one of the best coaches in the league, and despite how much he rides the players, I mean, I just don't think he's going to change it all, and I think that'll carry over the team. I mean, he's still going to be that same guy standing up the whole game, pushing the players relentlessly in practice and games. So I just think they're going to be in the playoffs this year, as long as they don't completely sell. I think Tom is going to stay on the on
0: It's a fascinating question, and it's also interesting, because right now, as far apart as they seem like based on how they've played, The Cavs and the Bulls are only four games apart in the total column. They're only three games apart in the wins column. Do you have a feel for which team will end up being ahead, regardless of playoffs or not playoffs?
2: I think that with this trade, I think Cleveland has a good shot at passing up the Bulls. And I think, you know, as much as Bulls want to make the comparisons to the Raptors trading Rudy Gay, I just think it's totally different things, totally different players. I think Luol Deng, his stats were outstanding this year. He's having, you know, 19.7 rebounds, 4 assists, like 45% shooting from the field. And beyond that, he's a great leader, a tremendous team player. I just don't think the Bulls will be able to recover that easily as the Raptors did. I think the Raptors had so much talent that hadn't been tapped into before Rudy Gay left. The Bulls are what they are. They have a lot of veteran guys who a ceiling has been reached there. You know, with guys like Joe Quino, even though he's 28, 29, I think his ceiling has been reached at this point. You know, Carlos Boozer, Heinrich is often injured. So I just think that a series has been reached there, and I think they have a shot at making the playoffs. Obviously, I think they will make the playoffs. But I think this trade really should push Cleveland into at least 6-5 seed maybe. And, and if it doesn't, I just think that's an indictment on the coaching staff, the players, because management went, went out and got little Bang. So I think this it's really on the players now.
0: And in agreement with your point on the difference between Dang and Rudy Gay, the other big factor in that is and you, you talked about this, is the apportionment of possessions. Like Rudy Gay, switching possessions from Rudy Gay to DeMar DeRozan and Jonas Valanciunas and Lowry and Terrence Ross, that is much different than taking possessions from Deng, and he uses less of them, and giving them to Heinrich and Boozer and Taj and Noah because you don't have that, as you said, that upside potential and you don't have the feeling that these guys can be better. We, we know that those Bulls guys, they're fine, and without Rose, There isn't that untapped benefit with this Bulls team, so that's a negative for them in in the short-term sense.
2: Exactly, and I think Luol Deng was, you know, sort of settling into that go-to guy role for the Bulls this season. He had a streak of, like, 10 straight some games double-digit straight games of 20-point scoring this season. I think it was the longest of his career. I just think that this is really going to hurt the Bulls offensively. They've been, as you you know, they've just been, Disastrous offensively this, this whole season as a whole, and it's just horrible. It, you know, just watching them is horrendous because it's not a great basketball most of the time. They play really sloppy. They truly grind every game out. Even the wins, they're not they're not pretty at all. So I, I just think it, it only gets worse for them offensively. This is going to give an opportunity for guys like Tony Snell to get major minutes. Possibly Eric Murphy, Jimmy Butler's already been playing a ton. Uh, so. This is a youth movement of sorts, and and I think that the Bulls are sort of positioning themselves well, but it goes against, you know, everything Tom Thibodeau and these players have stood for the past few seasons.
0: And that kind of conflict of interest is going to, I think, is going to be the big story for the Bulls for the rest of the season in terms of where that goes and then where that goes moving forward. But... At the same time, I don't think they were really going anywhere this year, so that downside. And so then it all comes back to the question of whether Deng was going to re-sign.
2: Exactly, and I think that all along, just from everything that Lowell Deng's camp has put out there, I, I just don't think they were confident at all that if it would reach the agency, I think they were pretty sure that they were going to sign elsewhere. just off of what happened in the off season, you know, I was told before the start of the season that, Contract extension talks hadn't even reached the financial stage in terms of even delving into potential offers or anything like that. That's how far apart these guys were. So I think there was a confidence that, you know, we're going to get this amount of money elsewhere, and I don't think the Bulls are able to match that. And I think that that's going to happen, whether it's the Cavs or, you know, some other team.
0: Well, congratulations on your reporting. Thanks so much for taking the time, and hope to talk to you soon.
2: Yep, for sure, Danny. Have a good one, man.
0: Thanks again to Shams for coming on. He's had a fabulous week, and you can read him on Real GM and follow his excellent reporting also on Twitter. His handle is S-H-A-M-S-C-H-A-R-A-N-I-A. Next up is Irv Sunachan. He and I have known each other for years because he was covering the Warriors right around when I started, so that was about five years ago. And he's been covering the league for about 15 years, most recently for Slam Magazine. And we talked for about an hour on a wide variety of topics from the Warriors' present and their future to an excellent article he recently wrote on Joe Barry Carroll to LeBron's place in history and the Western and Eastern Conference and a lot of stuff in between. Hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it because it really was a blast to do. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Anytime. Pleasure to be here.
0: Right now, you're spending most of your time in the Bay Area, so I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on this Warriors team and where you see them going in the next little while.
1: This is a really good Warriors team. They have a chance to be a championship-level team within the next couple of years. I think they're going places.
0: What do you see as the core of this unit moving forward? Because it's a lot of different parts, but some are probably essential and some are non-essential.
1: Well, Steph Curry is the core. I mean, without him, none of this is happening. I think Klay Thompson is the core. I think Andrew Bogut is the core. And Andre Iguodala is going to be here a long time because he signed a long-term contract. I think everything else could probably change, including David Lee, including any of the reserve players, including Harrison Barnes even. I think that's their core. I think they're still figuring out what that championship team looks like. Danny, who I relate it to is the early 80s Detroit Pistons. You probably don't remember these guys, but they had Isaiah Thomas, who I think actually compares well with Steph Curry. If you think about a very diminutive player, small by NBA standards, capable of leading a team to a championship, and then the team has to figure out how you build around that. When the Pistons first drafted Isaiah, they thought they were going to be a run-and-gun team because you have this guy who can score points in droves and he other people score points and he's racking up assists, and it seems very enticing to play an up-tempo game around him. But then you look at it, and then they drafted Joe Dumars a year or two later, a couple years later. And they realized, well, with that backcourt, we're going to score points. And they decided to surround them with a great defensive team. And I think the Warriors are kind of in the middle of that transition right now. So they have to kind of find their personality and, and figure out what fits best. And then you probably will see them, assuming all of these pieces stay healthy, compete for a title.
0: And that's why the Andre Iguodala signing was so important, is because he helps give the team a defensive identity, which Bogut helped as well, but he doesn't take as much off the table offensively, because in today's NBA, I think that you can be a good defensive team, but you can't have true offensive liabilities, and so the amount of guys who can play good defense or even great defense and can also keep the ball moving as he does and score when they get the chance is incredibly important.
1: I agree. You know, the, the, there was a, a short window of time in which you could win a championship with a couple of players in your starting lineup who couldn't shoot. That window of time was the 1990s. But any other era of basketball, everybody had to have skills. And we're, we're kind of coming back to that. I was talking with uh, Gary St. Jane, the former Warriors GM, longtime NBA assistant coach, and he made a very good point, which is that with the rules changes in the NBA, the games were reverting back to what it was in the 60s and 70s when you don't need to have a big battleship power forward like Karl Malone or Charles Oakley. And you don't need to have a true two guard like a big, you know, British Mitch Richmond type two guard like you did in the 90s where he was the archetype outside, of of course, Michael Jordan. Uh, but who could compare to that? So in lieu of Jordan, people wanted guys who were 6'5 and 220 and could knock Jordan over. And, and those days are over. So you can have two small guards in your backcourt. You can play, say, Jared Jack and Steph Curry. Clay Thompson is more of a classic two-guard. but It's not necessary anymore. So I, I agree.
0: As a fan and as a connoisseur of basketball, do you like the idea of returning more to the 60s and 70s style as opposed to the 80s and 90s? Well, I think the 80s were an extension.
1: If you look at the players who were there in the 80s, On on the championship level teams, they were so incredibly skilled. I am glad that it's not like it was in the 1990s. I was starting off at Basketball Digest in the 90s, and some of those games were getting a little boring. I mean, you have to admit, the the scoring was dropping every single year. Free throw shooting was getting worse every single year. There weren't a lot of guys who could have 15-foot jumpers. And we had a lot of 80s nostalgia in the 90s because we knew we weren't watching as good product. So uh, I think it's good that it's coming back.
0: I don't know if the credit necessarily goes to a guy like LeBron, but I think that it's been really nice to see passing and and ball movement become a much more common occurrence among high level teams and low level teams alike. And to me, that's good basketball. If the ball is moving and guys are getting shots, I think that's better. And I think that can also, you know, that can lead to some interesting defense as well. It's just not as sloggy and grindy as it was in the late nineties or the basically the whole nineties and early two thousands a little bit too.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think part of the difference was that they also brought back zone defenses. LeBron helped because LeBron was trying to be a throwback to Magic and not Jordan. That helped. But but I think bringing back zone defenses made a big difference. The influx of European players in the early 2000s made a big difference. So they forced everybody to adjust because they came over, the good ones came over with a full toolbox. They could pass, they could shoot. Not all of them really played defense. In fact, Most of them didn't. But offensively, they brought the complete game, and I think that changed things too.
0: Well, yeah, and the full toolbox allows teams, and you've seen this with the Spurs, among many other teams, to handle things differently. And, you know, the Spurs had Parker and Ginobili, who could both be primary ball handlers when need be, and they each had those moments when they were hot, particularly in the, in the era when they were so dominant. And other teams have tried to emulate that. And then you see guys like Dirk, who has an unusual skill set for his size, and so coaches can use that differently than a guy who's that height who has a more conventional skill set.
1: Yeah, I think it's a perfect storm of all these things. Jerk was better because of the role changes, too. And the other change, by the way, that, that has to be mentioned, the Sacramento Kings, it happened not too far, far from us. When they brought back the Princeton offense and brought in Pete Carroll to teach it, that became very influential, and that is truly a throwback offense.
0: The most recent piece, I believe, that you wrote was a really fascinating look at kind of the legacy of Joe Barry Carroll, which connects back to what we've been talking about a little bit with the Warriors, and I was wondering if you could run through that a little bit for our listeners.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, Joe Barry... Carroll was drafted as the number one pick of the 1980 NBA draft. The number one pick was owned by the Boston Celtics. They had acquired it when they they got Bob McAdoo and basically decided that he didn't fit on their team, traded him right away, turned into the number one pick. The Warriors held the number three pick. The Warriors traded the number three pick, and Robert Parrish, who they had drafted a few years prior to that, to the Celtics were the number one pick and the number 13 pick. And what ended up happening is the Celtics, of course, drafted Kevin McHale with that number three pick, who they had wanted all along. And so they ended up with Parrish and McHale basically for Joe Barry Carroll. And Joe Barry Carroll never lived that down. What's in the piece that people didn't realize is that Robert Parrish was near the end of his rookie contract with the Warriors. It was similar to today. They had five-year rookie contracts, and Parrish had just finished his fourth year and made it clear to the team that he wanted an extension or he wanted out. The Warriors were cash-strapped. The owner, Mr. Muley, was very poor compared to other owners. He couldn't afford to give Parrish an extension at anywhere close to market value. Parrish put it out there and said, if you can come within a certain amount of market value, I'll resign. Muley couldn't do it, and the rest is history. They had a guy who was possibly going to hold out, who was going to try to force a trade. He had the most powerful agent in all of sports, Bob Wolf, who also represented Dr. J and Larry Bird, Carl Yastrzemski, Bobby Orr kind of a Boston uh, lean to what he was doing. He was based in Boston, and he orchestrated the whole thing. Joe Barry Carroll was also one of his clients. So long story short, they were being asked to give up a guy who was going to leave anyway, as well as a draft pick, the number three pick, to get the number one pick. They didn't have a center. They weren't going to have a center as soon as Parrish left, so Joe Barry Carroll made sense. And unfortunately for Joe Barry Carroll, like I say in the story, he never quite lived that down, and it wasn't really reported until this story that Parrish was going to leave. I, I don't know why people
0: miss that. I think it goes to how narratives are shaped and especially the relationship in – especially in those days when the relationship between the press and the members, the kind of – if you want to say the newsmakers in sports was much narrower, was a much narrower spigot than it is now. And so I think – my guess is, and I'm guessing you'll agree with this, is that it was kind of people took Red Auerbach's, his gravitas and all of that as saying, oh, well, he just swindled the Warriors, and that was a narrative they could use, and the other story just never made it out there.
1: Yeah, there are two parts to that. You're right, everybody did go to Red, and when I asked Alvin Addles about this, he said, well, nobody ever asked me about it before, and that's unfortunate. Red at first said that he thought that Joe Barry Carroll would be about the same as a pro as Robert Parrish. He thought that he was trading equivalent pieces. That's what he told the media. And that's kind of a compliment to Joe Barry Carroll. The other part of it is that back then reporters I don't think were as concerned about the financial aspects of the game. I don't know that every reporter who covered the Warriors back then could tell you what all the players were making. They knew the Warriors were on a tighter budget, but it wasn't as public as it is today. I mean, now we have the internet, we go on and we can see the entire grid of all the Warriors' salary commitments. Back then, I don't think any reporter had that in, in any of their notebooks.
0: And another fascinating piece of the article was actually about what happened to Joe Barry Carroll at as his contract ended in the sort of the parallels that could have happened with Parrish and the sheer ridiculous situation that happened with him and Milwaukee.
1: That's one of the craziest situations I've ever heard of in the NBA. So Joe Barry Carroll, after the fourth year of his contract, did the same thing as Robert Parrish, except he fired Bob Wolfe and he hired a guy named Howard Slusher who was known as a human bulldog basically – I think Sports Illustrated named him the agent that teams love to hate more than any other agent. And so he he brought in Howard Slusher, who went to the Warriors and basically said, here's what we want. The Warriors weren't going to give him an extension, and and Joe Barry Carroll wanted out. So instead of holding out, which is what Howard Slusher wanted him to do, he went to Italy and won the Italian League title playing with a point guard named Mike D'Antoni. So after winning the Italian League title, he comes back to the U.S. and is immediately signed by the Milwaukee Bucks to an offer sheet. He was a restrictor-free agent. The Warriors matched the offer, and here there are two backroom deals that happened, one of which I talk about in the story and one of which I'll mention for the first time here. The first backroom deal is that the reason the Warriors matched the offer was Franklin Muley was getting ready to sell the team to a guy named Bob Fitzgerald, who was the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. First, Fitzgerald had to sell the Bucks, which he did to Herb Cole, and then he bought the Warriors. So he was in transition. He had just sold the Bucks, not a few weeks before they signed Joe Barry Carroll, and he was preparing to buy the Warriors within the next few months after it. And so he basically okayed the Warriors to re-sign Joe Barry Carroll because he did not want to inherit a team that was bereft of talent. And you have to remember that at the time the Joe Barry Carroll signing happened, Chris Mullen was a holdout. He didn't want to come to Golden State. They literally had no talent if Joe Barry Carroll left. So Joe Barry Carroll was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. But unfortunately for him, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it was a $2 million signing bonus, which even today would be a lot of money, and a $10 million contract overall. After the decades of cutting ties with players over money, Hall of Famers like, well, Chamberlain, Jamal Wilkes, Bernard King, it's a pretty good long list. The fans obviously hated Joe Barry Carroll after that. But, Danny, here's the other part that I, that's not in the story, and, and I can't tell you where I got this, but I can tell you that the Bucks ownership had a secret meeting with Joe Barry Carroll while he was in the Italian League, they flew him to a ski resort in the United States during a break in the action in the Italian League, and they met with him during the season. And they basically wanted to get to know him, find out if they wanted him on their team. They decided it was a go. So that when Joe Barry Carroll came back to the U.S., it was a done deal that the Bucks were going to make him that offer sheet. In the interim, Fitzgerald figured out that he could get a great deal by buying low for a team in a major media market like San Francisco. And that, wow. that changed everything.
0: That's a a, a really in, a insane situation. It's kind of amazing to think about in today's NBA so that, that they could even try to pull something like that off and much less successfully do it, except for the end part.
1: Well, except for the end part, although in baseball we have had situations where I think it was uh, the owner of the Expos became the owner of the Red Sox or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that part of it, but even the part of, you know, having a secret meeting with a player who's playing in Italy, but you have a secret meeting in the United States, and it's incredible. Well,
1: you know what, in the days when you have YouTube and and all these websites that'll put pictures up right away, it is harder to get away with, and everybody's got a camera in their pocket thanks to a cell phone. Sure, it's a little bit harder, but just in the last 15 or 20 years, I mean, I don't know this, but you can't tell me that somebody hadn't talked to Shaq before he signed with the Lakers.
0: Well, and the same thing, there are a lot of really interesting possibilities with Miami's three. They could have just done it with the three of them at the Olympics and they hatched a plan, or it could be much, much more complicated than that.
1: There is a long tradition of tampering in the NBA, for sure.
0: Yeah, and and I think that there's there's a really important factor in that, and obviously some of this was pre-salary cap, but I think that that has taken on a different light in this world of individual maximum salaries, because now... If players can't leverage for money, they're going to have to leverage for something else, and it actually opens the door up for more things like that. And there are ways of doing it without getting into the rules, and actually there was stuff with that with the Warriors, with Elton Brand and Baron Davis and all that kind of stuff, and there, you know, there are enough ways to couch it to get away with it. But it's a, it's a huge part of the league, for better or for worse. I,
1: I agree. It, it is a huge part of the league, although the players do get a, a little bonus. For, they get a little bit more money if they stay with their current team. I agree that, that that has really it's changed the game in a lot of ways.
0: If you were in control of, let's say, for whatever reason, you could negotiate the collective bargaining agreement by itself, what would you do with individual maximum salaries? I like
1: that system. I think it, it levels the playing field just a little bit. I like the fact that the home team can pay the player a little bit more. I think it's a good system, and I think it creates a middle class in the NBA. And, and I am all for a strong middle class. I didn't like it when you had one guy making $30 million a year and everybody else is kind of at the bottom of the ladder. So I, I think it's healthy for the NBA.
0: The good news on that front is that considering the structure of the way that the Players Association works, it, it seems likely that they will not lose their standing because when you think about aspects like voting, the rank and file dramatically outnumber the maximum players, and obviously they also outnumber the guys who aren't in the league yet. So when you think about who will get squeezed just from a sheer, if you want to call it politics standpoint, it's more likely to be everybody but the rank and file.
1: That makes sense, except that's never how voting works, including in our country, right? I mean, the people with the most money in the NBA have the most social power, just like in society. And so I think sometimes rules have been made that were hard for different parts of the NBA to swallow. And for a while, that rule didn't get put in. It had been suggested before because you know, look look who's at the negotiating table. You guys like Patrick Ewing or Jordan or whoever, they didn't want to see that. So that is somewhat true, but it it doesn't mean that it won't change in the future depending on who the heads of the union are.
0: So let's go back to the Warriors. We were talking before we we went on the Joe Barry Carroll, Robert Parrish train about where this team is now. Where do you see them going? And do you think that's what's best for them?
1: Well, I, yeah, I think they're moving in a pretty smart direction. I, I was very disappointed this offseason when they did not re-sign Jarrett Jack. I thought he was a key piece of the puzzle last year. They really miss him, and they would have had to go over the salary cap to re-sign him, and it, the ownership wasn't quite willing to do that, and and I was disappointed in that, too. I, I want to see them go for it. Maybe they think it wasn't time. I, I think they're closer. If they thought it wasn't time this offseason, then I say they're closer than they realize. Although, again, they, they couldn't have known how good Andrew Bogut would be. So moving forward, I think two things are going to have to happen. One is that they've decided that they're going to be a defensive team with Andrew Bogut, with Andre Iguodala. And I think they're going to have to put some more pieces around that to really to make it so. I mean, this is, this is a tough one, but David Lee might be the odd man out in this scenario. And the, and the other analogy with the early 80s Pistons and comparing Isaiah Thomas to Curry and Dumars to Klay Thompson – is that they had a small forward named Kelly Trapuca, who was a terrific player. He scored, I don't know, 25, 26 points a game. He was the top scorer in the NBA, shot better than 50% from the field, He was very efficient, but they really didn't reach their potential until they traded him and they started playing lineups that were better defensively. David Lee might be that guy where you look back and say, boy, he was a terrific player, but he just didn't quite fit in the direction the organization was moving. And I could really picture Andrew Bogut scoring a little more and playing next to a power forward who is also an excellent shot blocker but is more of a help defender, more bobble, and can finish on the fast break. I think this Warriors team needs a little injection of athleticism and another guy who can finish at the rim. Right now their two best finishers play the same position, Andre Widal and Harrison Barnes. So I think at the four they need somebody who's really long and athletic and kind of swoops in and blocks shots and creates turnovers and deflections and then finishes on the other end. And I think they need to replace Jared Jack. They need another guy who's big heart, who's kind of an on-the-court general, who's willing to take the big shot, as Jack was, and who makes the players around him better and is big enough to let Steph move over to the two because it's late in games. And, and somebody in the Warriors front office, I, I just offhandedly heard him mentioning that they really liked it when Steph, when they needed points at the end of a game last year, Steph could move over to the two and just go and concentrate on scoring, and they missed that. So I think when the team makes those adjustments or kind of adds those pieces, that's when you're going to see them in the finals, assuming their key players, Bogut and Curry, can stay healthy.
0: And factoring in on that, I think that it, that concept of a team, you know, modeling the shift of the Pistons would give them an identity and kind of a a swagger that would be very useful because they have enough offense, you know, they have those guys. And also to me, it feels easier to get a bench guy who can score in buckets, especially as a guard Mm -hmm. than it is to get a real like lockdown, tough defender. You know, you're going to, it's hard to get a power forward who can defend and is not a total liability everywhere else. That is a bench player, but you can get an offense first guard. Those exist all over the place.
1: I agree. I I, I think there are a couple of shifts that have to happen to to complete the transition. One of them will be adding those couple of pieces. They they might have to lose a David Lee to get there, or or Harrison Barnes might have to go. They might have to trade him to get the pieces they need. They're going to have to figure out what they really need moving forward, and they're going to have to do it basically without draft picks, so they're going to have to be very creative. And the other question will be whether Mark Jackson is the coach for them. Those Pistons made a coaching change right before they took off. They got Chuck Daly, who had been one of the top assistants in the NBA for a long time. He was one of the oldest first-time head coaches ever. And they have to decide if Mark Jackson is their Chuck Daly. To borrow a phrase from Lloyd Benston, I knew Chuck Daly and Mark Jackson is no Chuck Daly.
0: And that brings up an excellent point because I think that Mark is an amazing leader of men. I think that he's done a great job of getting the players to buy in. But you reach a point when that's done about as much as it can. And I'm not saying necessarily that the Warriors are at that point. What I'm saying is that he needs to show – growth as a tactical coach or have somebody in the on on the wings who can do that to show that this is a team that can stand toe-to-toe with the Popoviches of the world and even the Spolstra's he's a new he's a new high-end coach that can do the motivation and the strategy and he ha he's going to have to show that because they're not going to have the talent advantage against teams like Miami as presently constructed or whoever the next san antonio is or anything like that so strategy is going to matter a lot if they want to really compete for a championship i agree with that and
1: i would add that with mark jack if you compare him to some of these other coaches they served apprenticeships they were assistant coaches for a long time before they became a head coach and jackson didn't do that and and i think i i like to look at precedent and there's just not a precedent there if you look at the best coaches of the last 40 years, most of them served their time you know, carrying somebody else's water and, and learning under somebody else before they got their shot. And so with Mark Jackson, I'm, I'm not sure. And, and it, another thing about motivators of men, as you call Mark Jackson, he certainly is. But at some point, you run out of speeches, and there's got to be more, more going on there than that.
0: And the other factor in that is that this is a locker room full of what you could characterize, and I cover this team, and so do you, as good guys. You know, how often do you need to rattle the cages of guys who are already pretty much ready to go? And there are there have been circumstances this year where the team has gone completely flat. It seems like they need more of this is, okay, we're going to build a, a really cogent offense. We're going to have a defense that just suffocates other teams. As opposed to we need guys that are ready to play. And I think that there are teams that need that. There are teams that need straightening out. There are teams that that do that. But I'm not sure that this Warriors team needs that anymore.
1: I somewhat agree. I'm going to disagree with you on one point, which is that not all of this, and I think you're implying that some of this comes from the coach, but I don't think as much of that comes from the coach as people think. I think a lot of that comes from internal leadership. If, if you talk to people who played on championship teams, usually there's a really strong internal leader on the team. Larry Bird you know, is a classic example, or you look at Jabbar and Magic. They had two of them on the Lakers. And, and Jordan, of course, was one of the ultimates for that too. Steph Curry at some point or somebody has to step up. I, I, I had a conversation about this with Jerry Seaston who played on that uh, on the 1986 Celtics, and he pointed out to me that it's really a lot easier as a coach when your best player is also that leader. Coach Seasteam, by the way, was an assistant coach in Minnesota for 10 years, which coincided with the first 10 years of Kevin Garnett's career. He pointed out to me that as Garnett grew into a leader, his job got much, much easier. And players will tune out a coach, but they will not always tune out a teammate. And he recalled an incident to me when Garnett thought the team was losing focus. He just asked the team not to play music in the locker room. And he just said he, he was making a point about focusing before a game, and the team got the point by the way the Warriors don't have music in their locker room this year much either. That kind of leadership is necessary internally and Steph has to step up to that at some point. If not Steph then Clay or somebody.
0: And that's an interesting dynamic because Steph he has charisma on the floor and it seems like that could translate but from what I've seen, he seems willing to defer to other guys, and they have now they have players like Bogut and Iguodala that can do that. But as you said, there is a difference for teams when it comes from the best player versus coming from another starter, and that could potentially really help this team.
1: I agree. I see Andrew Bogut, by the way, like Bill Laimbeer. He was Bill Lambier has described himself as Isaiah Thomas's sergeant at arms, and I think Bogut would thrive in that role. And nobody ever messed with Isaiah because they were going to have to deal with Laimbeer. And Bogut is that guy for, for the Warriors. Uh, there's a lot of similarity there. But Isaiah came in and was a leader immediately, almost immediately. And Steph does have to step up to that. In terms of his charisma on the court, that charisma does extend off the court. I had a conversation about this with Don Nelson. This was Right at the very end of Nelson's last season as coach, I bribed him with a cigar to get him to talk to me. And he told me that Steph, even as a rookie, I think the term he used was he was a Pied Piper. He, He just had the magical ability to get people to want to follow him. And if Steph at some point wants to stop being so nice, I think he'll be a very effective leader. Steph is an extraordinarily nice human being.
0: He is, and and he also he has some intensity on the floor, so you know that it's yeah. in him, and he's, oh, yeah. and he's he's a competitor. You know, it's it's just it's becoming that you know the the manifestation of your team's mentality, and he can do that on defense too. You know, he ha- he can do that with more probably with energy than with skill because he doesn't have you know he doesn't have that skill set to be an amazing defender, but he can really play that role and turn this team with similar talent into a much more dangerous team when it comes to facing the same opponent up to seven times in a row.
1: I agree. A veteran NBA player once told me something interesting about leadership. He said that leadership in the NBA isn't really about asking a guy to do something different all the time. That can be part of it. But the biggest part of it is just making sure that guys stay focused and that their effort is as high as it can be, which it, and it does sometimes drift over an 82-game schedule. And, and so when the team comes out flat, it's not always – I mean, if you're a coach and your team is flat, you do have to say something. But it's, again, so much easier when there are players on the roster who are getting on each other, and specifically when the best player on the team is kind of policing that.
0: I think that Bogut Bogut has been more vocal in terms of, let's say, criticizing or whatever, admonishing David Lee on the court for some of his defensive mistakes – but it feels like there could be more of that. And also, when you're talking about a team and talking about the, the interesting parallel with those early early Pistons teams is that having any kind of leaky point in a defense is much more in some ways catastrophic than with an offense because that can be exploited. And what we saw in games like when the Warriors played Memphis at Oracle was when they knew that there was a weak point, if it came down to it, they would just exploit it as much as they could, and it was hard to stop when you, without changing the personnel.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And NBA teams will figure out a weakness really, really quickly. They're professionals, and there's just not a lot of margin for error. Even when you're playing the worst team in the NBA, they will often figure out a way if they have any motivation at all. You just don't have time to mess around with it. The Warriors, I, I don't know that Bogut is, is going to be that leader. He's He can be pretty acerbic and, and socially, I'm not sure where he, he fits into the social structure of the team. It, I think it does have to come from, probably at some point, Steph, or maybe clay thompson one clay gets more established but it's going to be um th- i think that's one of the big hurdles for the warriors especially when they get into a seven game set against a team like san antonio and jared jack isn't there anymore who became the de facto leader in that series last year
0: he did how do you about halfway through the season see particularly the western conference looking as we look more towards the playoffs than the regular season
1: The Western Conference this year is actually, I mean, the standings have changed since last year, but it's not that much different. You've got similar teams at the top. I think San Antonio's are still the favorites, even though they're trailing Oklahoma City in the standings. Nobody's proven to me that they can knock them off, and we need to see a healthy Russell Westbrook back in Oklahoma City for them to kind of retake the mantle as favorites. I'm not sure that Portland can play at the level they're playing at for the whole season. The Clippers have their flaws, too, and... I'm not certain that they're ready to take that leap into winning a championship, although they're pretty close. There's a chance for the Warriors to really do something if they make those one or two personnel moves we talked about. And the other kind of dangerous team here is Houston. They're basically a move away as well, and they know it. So it'll be interesting to see how everybody adjusts. I don't see any teams below that top six really doing anything.
0: I'm on a pretty similar note. The most interesting component for me of the West is that The last time a full-strength Oklahoma City team and a full-strength San Antonio team faced each other, the Thunder ended up winning four games in a row and winning the series, and they lost the Heat in the finals. But the big difference is that Oklahoma City team is never coming back. That team had Harden, who was a really tough matchup for the Spurs. And so the question is, has the development of Westbrook and Durant And Ibaka, and and their bench players are coming along. I'm happy with how they're doing. Does that offset the loss of Harden? And then how does the Spurs' big changes with Kawhi coming on and Danny Green becoming a bigger player? That whole dynamic, we just haven't seen it. I don't honestly know how that would work for a seven-game series. I agree. The San Antonio team is a little more
1: athletic than what we've seen in seasons past. And they came into Oakland, and they beat the Warriors without any of their big three playing, which is also an indictment of the Warriors' intensity. And you saw in that game Mark Jackson screaming at his team to play with more intensity. And when your coach, this is an aside, when your coach is telling you to play with more intensity, you're probably not going to play with more intensity.
0: That's a great point.
1: Yeah, same principle. I, I had a conversation with a team psychologist for the Boston Celtics about this a few years ago who told me that, When your coach is telling you not to panic, you're almost certainly going to panic. And you have to find some other kind of subterfuge to keep your team from panicking. He also told me that Phil Jackson was the best he's ever seen at that. But we can talk about that another time. Long story short, I agree. I'm not convinced that it would be a sweep for Oklahoma City again. I think San Antonio has improved. And they are, to me, the odds-on favorite. And they were the most complete team heading into the stretch run of the season, heading into the second half of the season.
0: The athleticism gap has thinned because of guys like Kawhi coming on. And also, to me, that that could be a really big story about the coaching. Because to me, Popovich is the best coach. Whether or not he wins, quote-unquote, Coach of the Year every year, I think he's the best coach in the league. And Scotty Brooks is shaky, you know. I, I I'm skeptical of guys who play, let's say, suboptimal rotations and players – for reasons that seem kind of specious I think that you're unless you're testing it out just to see how it works and to get guys confidence there isn't a reason to play Perkins and Fisher as much as they have when they've been healthy when the team as a whole has been healthy
1: on the one hand it is providing more rest for their key players and you don't want to burn them out on the other hand I agree with you personality wise Scotty Brooks is a perfect fit for that team he's a very low-key California dude he's just kind of, he fits in really well with their star, Kevin, uh, Kevin Durant. I think he's the right person at the right time. Yeah, I agree that in terms of game management, sometimes you shake your head, yet their guys will be rested coming to the playoffs. And if, if you want to give your main players rest, not like he has a whole lot of other options.
0: It's a fair point. The other factor, if we're going back to the Warriors, that I think, and I wrote about this for Warriors World earlier this week, is that the injury to Chris Paul – could play a major part in something that I never thought would happen, which is the possibility that the winner of the Pacific division gets a, they get the four seed regardless of how badly they finish. And that only affects seeding. It doesn't affect home court. So theoretically, if the warriors can quote unquote run up the score during this time, and obviously the warriors have potential injury stuff for themselves, eventually, you know, that's just the way it is that they could use that to kind of have a little bit more safety If they can stay relatively healthy because the Clippers without Chris Paul, I I can't see them staying perfectly afloat. It's just too big a hole for them because they're such a team that's dependent on his immense talent.
1: I agree. I I think – and this is going to sound funny to say because he's on TV every 10 minutes for those insurance advertisements. He's actually underrated the way he holds that team together. He's one of the best point guards I've ever seen. And I agree. I don't see how they could possibly keep their winning percentage where it is without him in the lineup. He's really the straw that stirs the drink there, even though Blake Griffin gets a lot of PR. I think the Warriors will overtake them in the next couple of weeks, and I also wouldn't be surprised to see Portland slip a little bit. Like I said, I, I don't. Know, they're the whole so far has been greater than the sum of their parts, and it's just going to be hard to maintain to that extent over the course of 82 games.
0: Yeah, I was I was describing the Suns when I was writing that piece, and I was thinking, you know, the breaks can't really go much better for them than they already have. And I think Portland's in that group as well. You know, their their starters have stayed pretty healthy. They've had a relatively favorable schedule. I think they're a dangerous team. I think that what they've gained in this process of starting so hot is the confidence that they can hang with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're going to lose that. But they're going to, I think that they're just going to run into just more hard scheduling. And, you know, you you get, you'll get into those situations and though it's not the dog days of summer and the dog days of February and March, when you just have those tough games and you have those tough opponents. And that's just a part of the league. You know, every team deals with that. You're not going to go 72 and 10. And so they're going to have to deal with that. And if, that slides them down a slot or two or three in the playoff picture. That I don't think that necessarily makes them less dangerous. It just kind of changes their position.
1: Yeah, and I will tell you this. If you're playing Portland in a playoff series, you definitely want home court advantage. You don't want to have to go into Portland to try to win four times in seven games. That's, that is a tough road to hoe. So if they come in with a top-four seed, I wouldn't envy the team that has to play them.
0: Do you have a sense of kind of – the East is, to me, just a giant morass of mediocrity other than the top two teams. Have you had any teams out there that you've really enjoyed watching or have any big takeaways from them?
1: No, I'm glad I covered the West this year. That said, uh, the two top teams in the East, to me, are better than any of the teams in the West. I know that Golden State just went into Miami and beat the Heat, but the Heat are awfully good, and it, any game is winnable when you have the single best player on four. And I mean – when you have somebody who's that hands down so much better than everybody else, Indiana's really good. I think those would be the top two teams in the West right now, too, if they played out here. But other than that, no, I, I watching 500 teams slog it out, it's, it's not much fun. I used to I used to actually cover the Eastern Conference, and Eastern Conference basketball is not always pretty. I'm having way more fun out here.
0: People talk about the star power and, you know, the, the all-star teams and all that. To me, it's the lack of, Full, fully formed teams, and the Warriors have been embracing this idea kind of of what's called full squad of how you know their their five man starting lineup. And when you look at teams in the Eastern Conference, you know if you want to talk about the Knicks or you want to talk about the Wizards or anybody, there are very few teams that have even a five man group that's really strong, much less a seven man rotation outside of the top two. I
1: agree. I think some of this, you have to wonder if some of it is attributable to LeBron James. Because if you're in the same conference as LeBron, you know that you're probably not going to beat them. So maybe you had a couple of years where the East was a little bit weak, and a couple of teams might have just said, ah, gee, we're probably not going to correct the team that's going to beat him in the next two or three years, so let's make sure we have some better draft choices, let's rebuild a little bit. And, And somehow that became a perpetual cycle in the East. And then you had the teams that were willing to spend money to win just mess it up terribly in Brooklyn and New York, and then you get the Eastern Conference as we know it today.
0: And the other thing, which is a major factor, and it seems like more happenstance than anything else, is that I'm of the opinion that the second greatest competitive advantage in today's NBA, with the first being uh, injury prevention and injury minimization, is the quality of ownership. Yeah. And there are many a much higher proportion of quality owners in the Western Conference than in the Eastern Conference and that is showing itself in kind of the teams that are regularly good
1: I somewhat agree if you look at the Western Conference playoff picture right now and you you look in the top eight the Clippers are sitting at number four and well we don't have to talk about Donald Sterling right now we all know his history and some of the things he's done so that's not exactly a strong owner and then also you look at Phoenix their ownership to me is a little bit shaky And Joe Lake is probably a conversation for another show, although he brought in Jerry West to basically tell him no, which I give him a lot of credit for. But overall, yeah, I I think that's probably true. You look at the ownership situations in Oklahoma City, as much as I don't like what they did to Seattle, you look at San Antonio, you look at Portland, and they're pretty stable and willing to do what it takes to win. Ditto for Houston and Dallas, for that matter, who's sitting in the
0: eighth seed right now. And who knows, but it might turn out that Sacramento and – and I would say Utah generally has had good ownership. They just have other disadvantages that are hard to shake at certain moments in time. But I think they'll be back, back in relevance relatively soon.
1: Sacramento has a new owner who I like. I thought it was very interesting. So he was a uh, former owner or part owner of the Golden State Warriors. The first thing they did, that ownership group when they took over the Kings, was they hired Chris Mullen as the front office type. And then they hired Michael Malone, who had been the right-hand man to Mark Jackson as their head coach. The first thing they did when they got to Sacramento was to kick the Warriors in the teeth. They took away the, guy, the one guy in Chris Mullin who generates the most goodwill of anybody in Warriors history pretty much right now. And then they, they took away a guy who was considered the X's and O's behind, behind Mark Jackson. I thought those were very, very savvy moves to start off with.
0: Yeah, the competitiveness and any other factor, if you're talking about the with, with the difference in conferences, is also that you have some good ownership in the East that they understand that they're good ownership and they're letting their teams falter a little bit. I'm thinking primarily of Boston in that sense, that Boston is secure enough in their overall arc that they're willing to kind of some shed some a year, rough year or two in order to build their base because they've done it before. But then you have other ones, like I, I think about the Knicks and the the Bulls to a point, and the Bobcats, and to the Wizards are in a weird place. And you and I have both covered them at various points. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I think that you see it in the Luol Dang trade that just happened. It's that there are more of these kind of petulant win now owners in the East, and you see that you know sports national sports media has a very East Coast presence to it, and those markets are more used to putting the bright lights on temporary shortcomings. I had a Real GM guest on a couple of weeks ago who was saying that basically he's a New Yorker. He felt that the Knicks couldn't rebuild, they could never like sustain badness because their fans just wouldn't tolerate it. And I think that that's an, a luxury that a large portion of Western Conference teams have.
1: You know, I covered Philadelphia for a while. That was my first job. I had the good fortune to cover the Allen Iverson-era 76ers, and those were some of the most impatient fans and also some of the toughest journalists I was ever around. Talk radio there in and of itself is just blistering, so I can see where that would happen in Philadelphia and New York. But before we go and, and put a halo around Danny Ainge in Boston, we haven't seen him do this before, really. So let's, I mean, you have to remember, he made some very swift moves to put the big three together. So let's see how patient he is with this rebuilding process because he needs to prove his patience to me. Let's put it that way. Just having dealt with him before, he is hyper-competitive, and I want to see if he's willing to ride this thing out. If he is, they're going to have a very good team and they've got a very good young coach. And to that list of patient owners, I would add the owners of the Milwaukee Bucks, who despite being in a very small market, managed to come up and kind of get competitive every so often just by building through the draft. They know they're not going to get many free agents, and they've done a good job. They've got the Greek freak there now, their first-round draft pick this year. They're going to have another high draft pick this summer. Let's see with those two young players together next year what they can do. So there are a couple of good owners in the East, but you're right. In the big markets, it's very hard to stay disciplined. Washington is another great example
0: yeah that flexibility of let's say fans to be bad and obviously that can also bite you as well and i think that one of the most astute criticisms that i ever heard of golden state warriors fans which are obviously fabulous in a lot of ways was that they might have been too good and that allowed a a bad owner like chris cohan Mm -hmm. the flexibility to not face the ramifications of the team being bad
1: i wrote quite a bit about that he had no incentive To get better, to his credit, if he deserves any credit at all, he did come up around the salary cap a couple times. He just did it with players who weren't ever really going to get him anywhere. I mean, when you're playing a frontcourt of Antoine Jamison, Eric Dampier, and Danny Fortson, you're you're just not going to win a title. So, yeah, he capped out on those guys, but that was never going to work out. But I agree that he had a lot of leeway to lose a lot of games, and he was still going to make a ton of money because the Warriors were in the top ten in attendance, even though they were just got awful and had absolutely no chance of winning
0: this is going to put you on the spot but i hadn't thought about asking you this and there aren't many people who i'd rather ask this have you thought at all about lebron's place in the discussion about the best player of all time and what he would need to do to get a stronger position in that conversation
1: oh he's in the conversation he's absolutely in the conversation to me he belongs in the conversation at the magic and bird level right now today if he Decided that he wanted to quit basketball tomorrow and join a monastery, which probably isn't going to happen. But if he did join Leonard Cohen in a monastery or something, I I think that he would still have to be in the conversation with Magic and Bird in kind of your top five or six players ever. You know, I mean, you're going to have Russell at the top. Chamberlain will probably be second, and Jabbar is up there, and then and then you've got Magic and Bird, and Jordan is well, I forgot Jordan. Jordan is number one above Russell, but then yeah, he's in your top ten at the very
0: least. And he could get into a very interesting place in terms of, if you want to call them the counting stats, depending on what he wants to do with his career, Mm -hmm. because he started young, unlike Michael, he started really young, and he's not going to take time off. So he could end up having the peak that's closer to Jordan and the counting stats that are closer to Kareem, which would be a really interesting argument for two different ends of more traditional thinkers, while the If you want to call them the analytics people, I think are already pretty much on board with LeBron being in that conversation.
1: I completely agree with that. I mean, Jabbar's point total is is mind-boggling when you consider that he played four years of college. But LeBron could could do that, and he's a guy who's going to age well because of his size. He'll always have that size. As long as his knees and his feet hold up, he probably could pass Jabbar at some point, and it would be an extraordinary accomplishment. The one hesitation that I think people have with LeBron is his leadership. I mean, Byrd was a great leader. Magic was a very good leader. And you look at Jabbar and Russell, those were all great leaders. Jordan, great leader. LeBron, covering him is not always pleasant. Let's just call a spade a spade. And his teammates have had mixed feelings, and he's had the kind of the, what was it, the, the television show that he did, the, um,
0: the <laughs> decision.
1: What an awful mess that was. But it doesn't diminish what he accomplishes on the court
0: that does factor in when you're talking about basketball player because I, and I think that he's an interesting guy because he clearly makes his teammates better on the floor mm-hmm. because he's such an unselfish player, but it's true that he doesn't have a lot of the, let's say social, Components that a lot of those transcendently great players do, and i 've never known for sure whether that was just innate, you know whether it 's a selection bias that you know if you 're given enough ability to be a magic Johnson type player that you just have that kind of confidence or whether it 's just you could call it good fortune that a large portion of them have had that, and I think LeBron is testing some of that though he's not you know he 's not a, a a bad person in that sense, he just doesn 't have that magnetism as a, like a member of a team that somebody like Magic did?
1: Part of it is a difference in eras, too. Those guys that we're talking about, Jordan, Magic, Burt, from very different eras, Dr. J, very, very different era. And so leadership meant something different, and they also grew up as normal people. They might have been the star of their high school teams, I and mean, obviously they all were, but they had to develop a social personality, and LeBron never had to do that. He was always, you know, the gifted child or whatever he's got tattooed across his bicep. And, and yeah, so I, I think I, I just think he grew up in a very different environment or he wasn't forced as much to develop those skills, but again, that's just armchair psychology who, who really knows, you know, where that
0: comes from. When I was talking with Ethan sherwood and I mentioned this a little bit with Mark Spears when they were on last week, that what I admire the most about LeBron is that of the guys in this generation, he has done an amazing job turning his weaknesses when he came into the league into strengths, as opposed to turning them into neutrals, you know, things like that is that, his defense was shaky, though he always had the physical profile to do it. And his shooting has become very strong. You know, he's not only in terms of the efficiency, which everybody's doing, but his jump shot is substantially better than it used to be. I agree. It reminds
1: me a lot of Magic Johnson. If you look at Magic before his knee injury, it was very, very similar to LeBron. And then later in his career, he developed a three-point shot that was pretty dangerous. And, and I think you're, and his free throw shooting improved. LeBron did that and more so and didn't hurt his knee along the way. So I, I I agree. It's been pretty remarkable, the improvement he's made. It's what everybody hoped he would do.
0: Do you see anybody in that kind of next group of young guys that really stands out as somebody who has the potential to be, let's say, more than special, but just, you know, like a real – somebody that you'll tell your kids about and all of that in that group of guys?
1: Do you remember when Michael retired, when Jordan retired? And we were all saying, well, who's the next Jordan? And, well, is it Kobe? Is it not Kobe? You know, can Shaq take that man? And we're looking at all these guys. Can Tim Duncan be a Jordanish player, or at least in terms of his dominance and all that? And the conclusion basically was there probably is another player of that caliber, but we don't know who he is, and he's probably like 10. And it was LeBron James. And I think it's the same thing now. I don't know. That kid exists probably out there somewhere. Is he an infant? Is he a toddler? Is he in middle school? Is he Julius Irving's kid who's killing it in high school right now? I don't know. That player, if he exists, is not on my radar right now. Let's put it that way.
0: I, I've caught myself, as somebody who was in the arena for the Final Four game, thinking about, because there's been all this conversation about, is Dwight Howard the next great big man? And I thought I've thought for a while that what if that guy was Greg Oden and his body just didn't cooperate? And you know that, that the, tr- the the generational big man just – didn't make it in because his body just didn't just didn't work and that that's a possibility with everything with everybody playing different sports and all that now too
1: yeah i I agree that's that's always been an issue i in terms of dwight howard i don't know that age is going to be that kind to him frankly
0: i don't see him being
1: a terrific 33 year old basketball player i don't see him aging the way jabbar did Jabbar had incredible skill, and I just don't see Dwight Howard as being in that category. He will also have to double down on his commitment to fitness. And I think a lot of Dwight's gifts are, are natural, more natural than people think. And he will have to get more disciplined with how he takes care of himself as he gets older. I'm still waiting to see it. He is certainly motivated, though, by signing with a team that has basically five Hall of Fame centers in its past who are all probably beating on him to, to do it. But I I don't know that he's going to age that well and be that kind of generational center. I'm kind of iffy on that possibility. And the game has changed, too. The game has become a more perimeter-focused game.
0: That's true. I also think that with Dwight, uh, you bring up a great point with him aging. I think we saw some of that last year, actually, when he was recovering from that injury. We saw kind of what a less mobile, a little less agile Dwight looks like. And it's still a useful player. Mm -hmm. It's still somebody who has value, but it's not somebody who's going to be, you know, even to me, the second best player on a championship team. And in some ways, in my mind, that started a ticking clock of when is healthy Dwight going to, with age, turn into the Dwight that we saw last year? Yeah,
1: I think that, Rockets probably are aware that their window of opportunity is not going to be open forever. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if somewhere in the next year, between now and the next trading deadline, something dramatic happens with that team to try to push them over the hump. I think Sorry. they're going to have to strike while they have the opportunity.
0: And I think that there, it's actually a relatively decent chance with that in the next couple of years, because depending on what happens with Miami, I think that Every team is beatable. I think they're very strong teams at the top, but there are, no, there are no teams that I see as just being dominant like the three Pete Lakers were, where it's just I, I just would have trouble thinking of how you would beat them unless they beat themselves, which is what happened. And I don't see my, LeBron is an amazing player, but I don't see the pieces around him as being in that mode where they're unstoppable.
1: I agree somewhat, but if all three of those guys are healthy. They're awfully tough to beat in a seven-game series. You've got the best player on the floor in any game, and Dwayne Wade is as good when he's healthy as any other player, basically, on the floor for any other team or close. He might not be Paul George right now, but he's close. And Chris Bosh is underrated largely because he plays with LeBron and D. Wade. And if you get those three guys healthy and their supporting cast is healthy enough to get on the court, they're very tough to beat, and nobody in the West, aside from San Antonio, has shown me that they can hang with them.
0: And San Antonio hung with them, despite Tony Parker handling injury, and obviously you can say that Wade was as well and that injuries go, but that's a series that would be just magnificent to see again and to see how they adjust to each other and where it goes from here.
1: As a fan, I really do want to see that series again. Although, keep an eye on the Warriors. They're, like I, I said earlier, they're, they're kind of one move away. They're a couple players away from doing it, and those players are not necessarily max players. I mean... If you're a LeBron and a Wade away from winning a championship, we're not going to see you for a while. But they're two supporting players away from probably competing for a championship. They're not that far off. Again, assuming that Bogut and Curry can stay healthy.
0: Yeah, I, I think that they'd be a different breed of championship team. You know, I, I've been of the mind for years that you we want to have two of the best three players on the floor. And I think that as presently constructed, this Warriors team will have that against some teams, but not against every team. But they could go in more that ensemble with Steph Curry being a very, 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 very good player going in that route and doing really well, especially if the other teams in the Western Conference kind of shake out whether that be due to time or whether that be you know if if the Thunder break apart because over in a couple of years Durant or Westbrook decide to go elsewhere it's going to be a, an interesting landscape and they have the pieces to be a part of that conversation even if they might not be all the way there yet
1: i agree that the next if you look at the length of Bogut's current contract and if he stays healthy over the length of that contract they are probably that team and not to make another Detroit Pistons analogy but You look at the way the team is constructed, and you you look at the way that team is constructed. Isaiah wasn't the best player in the NBA. He wasn't the best player on the court in a lot of playoff series, which is a credit to how good Bird and Magic were. But he was a top-ten player in the NBA, just like Steph Curry is right now. Steph Curry is a top-ten player in the NBA, and that's probably good enough to get you over the hump if you have the right ensemble around him. And Klay Thompson is awfully good. He's probably close to all-star level. Dave Lee's probably going to be an all-star again. Andrew Bogut could be an all-star in a different lineup, basically, where he gets more touches. It's an awfully, awfully good start. Andre Wadala was a dream teamer.
0: I remember when he was coming into the draft, because he and I were in college at the same time, that he looks like one of those guys who could be a, a much better player on a great team than on a good team, because he's he can do a lot of the, if you want to call them little things, but those little things aren't little, they're big, but a lot of the grittier things that some high-end players just don't do. He can defend the other team's best player for 40 minutes a night if you need that. He can be a facilitator while not your primary guy on offense. Those yeah, are things you that you need things. somebody to do. I'm Go sorry ahead. to interrupt. I'll give no, you two, no, that was- two,
1: two little things that he, he will do. One is that a seven-game series against Oklahoma City, he will wear down Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant will not like getting pushed around by Andre Iguodala, but he most certainly will be. And against the Heat, now you've got a guy who... Is going to guard LeBron. I find that very interesting, and he also is going to put Manu Ginobili on his back once or twice, if they play the Spurs again this year. And that's a tough matchup for Manu. So the whole, and he can he can check Kawhi Leonard. He can he's he's a total game changer for this team. Or you can go small and let Tim Duncan chase him around.
0: And you can also with the flexibility. One of the things that I love about Klay Thompson playing with Iguodala is that. If you just kind of protect Clay a little bit by putting him on the other team's second-best perimeter player, he has good instincts. He's a quality defender. He's not an elite defender by any stretch. He becomes much better when you give him an easier assignment, and that would be a huge benefit. And you can also use use those guys a little bit. You could, in certain situations like, let's say, the Spurs, slide Iguodala for stretches on Parker and then have Curry slide over and guard whoever they're playing at the two, whether that be Danny Green or Manu, depending on how they're shaking everything out. And just to kind of change the pace and try to screw with their rhythm. And that is something that very few teams have.
1: I agree. And what they're doing a lot now is moving Thompson over to guard the other team's best guard. And so that, so that to basically to protect Steph Curry at, at some point, they'll need to bring in another point guard, but Thompson is going to have some tough assignments. I mean, if, if that series were to happen, you probably would see Thompson on Parker a lot. Having Iguodala there, who can also chip in, maybe helps. The thing about Parker, just this is, we're, you know, not to go too far down this right hole, but Parker is so quick. I, I'm not sure I want that matchup with Iguodala on him. I think he could actually give Iguodala fits with his quickness. I think mean, as everybody fits with his quickness, but Iguodala is a really big dude to have to chase around a guy like Tony Parker.
0: Yeah, I think you'd want to go with more of a team defense concept, basically with the idea that Parker's going to get by that guy, so maybe you run more in terms of support systems and things like that as opposed to just with the understanding that – or just let him beat you as much and just make sure that nobody else gets open looks, which is what I advocated for Miami to do against Dirk when they lost in that finals was to just basically let – I thought everybody else on that Mavericks team was – gaining advantages by teams sending a second guy or spending an extra set of eyes at Dirk and just let him score his 30 or 40 and just hold everybody else down and you can, you can outscore the rest of the team.
1: That argument has been going on for as long as basketball has been played. That's a historic debate. I'm, I'm not sure if there's a good answer for somebody like Dirk in his prime. Teams try it both ways and Parker is going to get his points no matter what you do. That's a really tough matchup. This also, by the way, plays into the idea that the Warriors need a defensive power forward to play with bogut who's a great help defender so if you've got a guy kind of swooping in the block shots out of nowhere that changes the complexion for tony parker too bogut is is many things but he's he's not necessarily that guy
0: i agree completely i there are guys that can fit in there the big question is can they identify them and can they secure them
1: it's going to be interesting because you know with the East kind of all in this mess above b- below the top two teams, all these kind of mediocre teams have a chance to make the playoffs, but they all know that they're mediocre. I mean they're they're not they're not dumb. NBA GMs are a lot smarter than most people think, with a couple notable exceptions, <clears throat> with n- mostly in New York. As a New Yorker, I so just had to point that out. But they're smart guys, and I, I think a couple of them are going to be ready to give up on a season if they get the right package. The Warriors don't have a lot of picks to deal with anymore. They do have a couple of decent chips, and, and we'll see what they do. But I think there will be opportunities out there for teams that realize that they're just not that good right now.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. It was really it was really great to have you.
1: Hey, I appreciate it. Let's let's do it anytime. By the, Draymond Green would have been a great Detroit Piston back in the day.
0: He would have been, and I think he's going to be a really good Golden State Warrior if, as long as they use him correctly.
1: Yes, I agree, but you need a couple Draymonds. They basically need Draymond on steroids. I probably shouldn't say that with the Baseball Hall of Fame announcements tomorrow, but they need a, <laughs> <laughs> they need like a slightly bigger and badder version of Draymond.
0: Well, hopefully the weight room can do that because I'm not going to say hopefully PEDs will do that because I don't root for that in any circumstance.
1: Well, I mean a little taller, a little more athletic, a little more everything.
0: Well, thanks Thanks again for coming hey, on. hope we'll do
1: it soon.
0: We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Irv Sunichan for coming on. It was a pleasure to have him. You can read him on Slam Magazine or Slam Online. His Joe Barry Carroll piece is available now, and he has a piece on Andrew Bogut that is coming out soon. This is going up on a Thursday, and I think that he said it's going to be in the next couple days. So look for it. It's, I'm sure it's going to be really good. Thanks again to Sean Strania for coming on and to Irv for coming on. It was a pleasure to have both of them. And thank you for listening. I'm going to be doing some interesting stuff in the next couple weeks, looking to do a broader one like the year in review, but on ways that people could fix the playoff structure and the lottery structure. So if there are people that you want to have on, you can let me know at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me at daniel.laRue at realgm.com. And just as importantly, you can let them know. I'm hoping to get a great group of people. There's already been some really strong interest. And I'm going to give people 10 to 15 minutes to basically just lay out what they want. And we're going to have a lot of normal broadcasts between now and then. I'm hoping to do that one in late January. But it's going to really depend on availability for everybody because I want to make sure it's as good as it can be. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being here. Take care and make it a great day. (music) The <music> first